Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. In that first full year on the road, I worked 50 out of 52 weeks on the road. What? <laughs> well, I don't want to be on the road for first steps and first words. And so I moved back home seven months after I had gone to LA. I appreciate you sharing that. I haven't heard anyone talk about that side of them before. I mean, we can, I mean, I don't want to give all of my secrets. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever have any moments when you wanted to like quit doubting the whole decision to quit a corporate job to do this? Hot breath. What's goody? Hot Breath Verse. Welcome back to Hot Breath, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I am your host, comedian Joel Byers, and our guest today has something most comics don't. Work-life balance. <laughs> his 25-year comedy career started after quitting his corporate job to where he would go out on the road for up to two and a half months at a time, grinding it out, sleeping in his car a lot of the times. Yes, he did do all the comedy things that we strive to do as comedians. He did make the move to LA. He did get a Comedy Central special. He did get on Just For Laughs Comedy Festival and so many more things we see as success. But all of that taught him he would like to see his family more. So he created some side hustles that became so successful as businesses, he is now able to do comedy whenever he wants, which includes having dry bar specials with over 50 million views between all of them, to now having his own businesses, and raising a family. What? A comedian that spends time with his family? So we're gonna get into all that and much more. So ladies and gentlemen, hot brethren and sister, and welcome to the Hot Breathiverse, Mr. Josh Sneed, everyone. Thank you, Joe. That was very nice of you. Yeah? That was very kind of you to say those things. It's very true. It's true. I mean, uh, you, they were, there were factual statements, you know? Um, it's, it's funny, like it's, you know, uh, it doesn't seem like that long ago where I was the comic that was like, couldn't wait to be on the road. Like I had no place to be. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to sleep in my car because that meant that I was like so far away from home to do stand up that it didn't make sense to drive back. You know what I mean? So like with the, with that comes a lot of good memories, like hearing you say those things because you know, there's some the, some benchmarks in there you mentioned that, you know, when you first start doing open mic nights, they're just kind of like dreams. Like, what if, what if you got your own Comedy Central special? What would it, what would the background look like? You know, mm -hmm. I remember that's what I used to do with the open micers. I sit around and go, man, if you ever got a Comedy Central special, what would, what would your <laughs> backdrop look like? That was back when you could actually pick what it uh -huh. was. And I was like, oh, mine would look like a, like an empty school classroom and I was in detention, you know, writing sentences on the chalkboard. And then I got my special, you know, and, and one of the phone calls was like, what, what do you want your, have you given any thought to, you know, what the set should look like? And I was like, I know exactly what I want it to look like. I've been thinking about this, you know, wow, yeah. for years. And then walking into the theater in New York to film it and then just like seeing it, like built out laid out on the stage it's like i mean that's like dream come true kind of stuff you mm -hmm. know and it makes all that stuff that you talked about worth it you know and then you just kind of get to a point in your life as a as an adult at least i did where it was just like 
I want this to stay fun. I want this to to be enjoyable for me for as long as I feel like doing it. Because when I first started, I met so many headliners that they kind of hated comedy. They had like a, an animosity um, toward it because it had taken everything from them personally, right? It kept them on the road to where their relationships with their spouse or their children or close friends had kind of fallen by the wayside because they weren't around. And I just, uh, it, it was like a double, you know, a double whammy for them because they didn't, they didn't like doing it anymore. And then they also didn't have like a, a real home life. And I wanted to sort of preserve both of those things. Mm-hmm. So that's why I had to try to find the side hustles, you know, to, to when I started them, they didn't have to be successful right then. But the thought was one day, if these can provide enough income to make it so that I don't have to be on the road all the time, then that would be the ideal scenario. And then I'm, you know, I'm very lucky that that worked out. How long in your career did you start these? So the t-shirt company, I started in 05. So that was 18 years ago. Um, and that was started with a buddy of mine. So that was 18 years. You've been doing it 25 Correct. So seven years into your career, you're already thinking, okay, let me get a little strategic here. I got on like a a fairly quick path, I think, in terms of at least at at that time of how quickly I transitioned from just kind of doing open mics and local shows to going in full time. So February of 98, that was the first time I ever went on stage. It was a month before my 21st birthday. And I just fell in love with it right away, you know, and being 20, working, single, no kids, like it was so easy for me to just be at the comedy club every night, you know, just soaking everything I could learn in like a sponge. Um, And Cincinnati didn't have a real big scene. We had one club. There weren't like, it's not like today where there's like you know, shows in people's basements and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, it was yeah. like, you got on stage at the open mic night or you didn't really get on stage. And so, um, you know, I just, I just tried to work as often as I could locally, um, to learn, to get better and then start to try to build relationships with some of the headliners that were coming through town. And I was very blessed with, um, you know, Greg Warren is a friend of mine. He's wow. the first person that I ever met in stand up. He ran the open mic night when I started. And he was also a Procter and Gamble employee at that time, which he talks a lot about in his new special <laughs> yeah. selling peanut, peanut butter. butter. Yeah. So it was like we had a lot of parallels. He was, you know, he's just a little bit older than me, but we were both had corporate backgrounds and he was just like so like if you're gonna meet one person as the first person in standup, like that's the guy you want to, you know, to kind of be like a little bit of a mentor. I don't know if he'd call himself that, but he really was for me. And so, um, I, I got as much work as the club would give me and go bananas, my home club being the only club in town and being known as like a really good club. They were able to get like just awesome comics. I mean, they'd have Chappelle and Hedberg and Geraldo and you know like all the guys. Oh my god! And I would watch them, and I'd get my first pick. I'd get to work with them. Oh yeah! So they would say like you know, so a long story longer. When Greg transitioned from running the open mic night to really starting to look at having a full time career in comedy, I took over the open mic night. 
And at the time, the open mic nights were not very well attended by audience members. And so we were trying to think of a way to get new open micers because what we learned was when somebody does stand up for the first time, they tell everyone they know. So if we could get more people to try it, we could get more people to come watch it. And so the only request that I had for taking it over was that if that I got to host all of those shows and that I got my I got first choice each month of which week to MC because there weren't a ton of MCs either. So uh, so I would cherry pick like all the guys, you know, that come through town and uh, and it was just so beneficial to me. And I think it helped me get better quicker. You know, and yeah, I mean? like yeah, having, yeah. having real amounts of time at a good club in front of real audiences helped me progress a little bit faster. And so in July of 01, Procter and Gamble announced cutbacks and um, offered voluntary separation packages to anybody that wanted one. And so I just thought that, you know, here's my chance. You know, I was, I was kind of going back and forth on whether or not I wanted to do comedy full time. And I felt like I had made enough relationships with some headliners to get me in some clubs outside of my, you know, Cincinnati radius. And so, uh, so I, I took a voluntary separation package and so I found myself doing stand up full time, like three and a half years after I started. Oh my Yeah. So by the time Oh five came around, I'd only been doing it, you know, seven years, but I'd been on the road full time for four years. Wow. And that first full year on the road, 2002, I worked 50 out of 52 weeks on the road. So I was on stage a lot, like a lot, you know, and it, like I was saying at the time, I loved it. You know, I didn't think about how often I was gone or who I wasn't seeing. Like that was, that was my only focus was to get out and do stand up. What are, I always ask people about like their like worst bombing or like worst gigs. I mean, what it, what were some of yours or like one that sticks out? There's two that stick out. Um, there was one. <laughs> you just had a PTSD. Yeah. Like. Well, one I talk about on stage um, and I didn't even like, it was so bad that I never even thought about telling it as like a horrible comedy story. It just sort of came out when I was, I was on the Bob and Tom show one day and we were talking about hell gigs and I started telling this story and, uh, and then somebody was like, you need to talk about this on stage. So, when I tell it on stage, I open with saying like, it's great to be here. And, and I'm, and I mean that because this is a good gig and I know a good gig cause I've done terrible gigs. And, uh, when I had first started doing stand up, a woman from the Dayton dragons baseball team, which is the single a team for the reds came up to me after a show and had this idea, uh, you know, minor league baseball teams are known for like all the silly stuff that they do between innings. And she was like, I got this idea that um that a comedian would dress up like an umpire <laughs> and that the umpire would come into the dugout like the real one and then you would put on the mask and go out and then we'd make an announcement that hey well we got a couple minutes the umpire is also a comedian and then you go out and you do jokes dressed like the umpire and she was like we'll pay you and and she's like it's a sold out crowd i mean i've been doing comedy six months she's like a hundred bucks come on out and she's like we'll pay you and i was like all right i'm six months in i'm getting paid right, right stand right. up in front of twelve thousand people awesome 
So I drive up to Dayton. Um, and right before I'm supposed to go out, I've got the whole gear on the umpire. There's like a close play at the plate and the umpire makes like the wrong call. And the star player jumps in his face and starts jawing with him and he throws him out of the game. (laughs) And then the manager goes out to argue and he gets thrown out of the game. And now everyone hates this guy. That I'm about to pretend to be. And I'm just, and the, the dude that was with me is like, do you want to, do you like want to wait a couple innings? I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know? And so, so then they're like, it's such a longer story than this, but they ended yeah. up making us go to the away team's dugout because the umpire said, if we're still going to do this comedy thing, I don't want to be in the home team dugout with all these players and stuff who's, who hate me. Right. So now we move, he comes over and, um, and they had this guy who walked around with the mascot between innings. He was like this big, he's a, he's a linebacker for the jets who lived in Dayton, Ohio in the summer. And he would throw out t-shirts to the crowd. Like everybody loved this guy. And he had told me before I go out, he's like, if anything goes weird, I'll come out and, you know, smooth it over. And I was like, awesome. So sure enough. They make the announcement. I put the mask on. I start walking out. I'm getting booed as I'm just walking to home plate. Like, you suck, you know? <laughs> and so uh, so I start doing my act, and, uh, and they're kind of listening. Like, they've stopped booing. And so I'm just like, I don't know if I should just wrap this up. And I say, I go, there. I, I'd been making fun of the flea market and people who go to the flea market. And I say, are there any... NASCAR fans here tonight and they're like you know and I was like NASCAR is huge at the flea market mm-hmm. and then boo I mean they start throwing pretzels <laughs> and hot dogs and stuff and I'm just like I don't know what to do because like my time's up <laughs> and and then I see that guy he he comes jogging out of the dugout and I'm like oh cool he's coming you know to tell everybody it was just a big joke or whatever and the, at full speed spears me just like just like crushes me and i'm just like laying on the ground like i don't know if i'm concussed or if i've had like a spinal injury or whatever (laughs) but the place is losing their mind like they are (laughs) it is the coolest thing they've ever seen and so he i remember this he picks up the microphone on the ground that i had dropped and then he just grabs me with his other arm and throws me over his shoulder and he was like, guys, I'll take out the trash tonight. And they're like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I just remember like, like going on the, on his back off the field, like, like I can't breathe or anything, you know, <laughs> and he gets me underground and he's like, you all right. And I was like, I was like, yeah, that was, that was crazy. And he goes, he goes, were you crying out there? <laughs> and I was like, no. I was like, I was like, I couldn't, like, I couldn't breathe. I was like, I can't believe I did this for thirty-five dollars. Thirty-five. Thirty-five dollars. Oh, I said a hundred. I was getting greedy. Yeah, thirty-five bucks. <laughs> I had invited my parents to come watch me. They were in the stands. I was like, Mom, Dad, come watch me do stand up in front of all these people. A big deal. So that's the one that immediately jumps out. Yeah. Like hell gigs. Uh, in a club, the worst one was a uh, an urban night, oh, yeah. uh, an Apollo night in Cincinnati that uh, I was invited to perform on uh, that Chad Johnson, Chad Ochocinco, former Bengals player, nice. uh, it was his night. 
And my buddy Gary Owen was like, come do some time. Oh, yeah. He's from Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I don't, I don't know if that's <laughs> the right environment for so my wife. You know? right, yeah. And uh, he's like, they'll love you. Come on. I'll give you a good introduction. And I'm like, I just don't know. And so, because I'd been to those shows before and, you know, uh, I know you talked to Earthquake. Like I had done a ton of like hosting for Earthquake and RNSJ and some more and, and those are fine. But the Apollo Knights, mm-hmm. they just pick someone that they've decided they're not going to like no matter what. Oh, I've done those in Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. And so I go up and I don't even get like the mic out of the mic stand and I'm just getting booed and booed. And I was just like, this is dumb. Why did, Why am I doing this? And so finally I just go, all right, cool. And I just put the mic in the mic stand. And I'm like, this is the worst experience I think I've ever had in a comedy club. And I walk off stage and Gary runs up and just starts scolding the audience. And he's just like, this guy is my friend. You didn't even let him get a joke out. He's been on Comedy Central. And I'm just like, that's really cool of him to do that, you know. And uh, and he goes, I'm going to bring him back up here. <laughs> oh, do not. I'm off to stage. No, do not. I'm bringing him back up here, and you guys are gonna be nice that you're gonna let him. And I'm like, why is he doing it? He's like, give it up again for Josh Sneed. And I'm like, Ugh. and I walk back up there, and they're quiet. I get the mic out of the mic stand. So the other, boo, they just start again. I'm like, I just put the mic back in and walked off stage. And that one still, that one still stings still a little stings. bit. Cause I never even got a chance. It yeah. wasn't even like I, I bombed hard. Like it was like, I didn't even get a chance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all go through those gigs, you know, as a comedian, like there's always those ups and downs. Like, did, did you ever have any, cause you've been, you know, I've been doing it 13 years. Did you ever have any moments of like, you wanted to like quit or you're like doubting the whole decision to quit a corporate job to do this? I don't think so. And I, I say that, I say that just because like my career has been a a lot of good fortune and luck, but also being prepared, like all kind of intertwined together. You know what I mean? So when I in 03, I'd been doing comedy full time for a couple years, and um, I made the finals of this Comedy Central contest called the Laugh Riots. And what they were doing is they would have shows all over the country, and then one winner from each show got picked to go to Los Angeles for the finals. And um, there were some great comics that had made, like Kyle Kinane was in the finals, Chad Daniels, I think. Um, Chris Fairbanks, just some really solid, mm-hmm. super funny dudes, Kostaki. Um, and so I go out to LA and I decide I'm going to move to LA and try to capitalize off of like whatever, like little bit of heat or, you know what I mean? Kind of comes from this. And, and like I said, at that point, I'm only two years into full time. So I haven't had anything but just like living my dream on the road. And so I moved to LA and uh, I'm starting to get some like on into some of the local clubs. And then I signed with a manager. Um, and I said, whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do like, I'm not going to, I'm young. I, I have no idea what I'm doing or what it takes to make it out here. So whatever he says, I'm going to listen. And so I signed with this guy and he says, no more shows in LA. 
And I was like, what? And he goes, until you've either done a festival or been on TV, I don't want you doing any shows in L.A. He was like, it's very important for people to see you in the right light when they make their first impression of you. And if you just do some show where you have a bad set or it's a bad crowd, then that's their that's how they see you as like somebody who's just not ready. He was like, I want them to see you in the right light first. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to pretend to know better. And so, um, my roommate at the time got engaged and then got married within five months of meeting the girl Mm -hmm. gets engaged and married. So now I'm living with a married couple in LA I'm not doing any shows when I'm not on the road because my manager told me not to. And so almost instantly I was like, I think I'm just going to move back to Cincinnati. I mean, I was there for like seven months. Wow. Yeah. And, and it was a tough pill to swallow, but a good friend of mine, finesse Mitchell had made Saturday night live. So he had moved from LA to New York and I was going to New York all the time to hang out with him and, and, and hang out at SNL. And I was like, maybe that's a better play for me. But while I decide, I just, I can't stay in LA because I'm on the road constantly just to afford living here. So I moved back home seven months after I, after I had gone to LA and, uh, and so I moved home January of 04 and then, uh, July of 04, I got Montreal and August of 04, I got premium blend on comedy central. So I'd been home five months and I had done both of the things he told me I had to do, but I wasn't, I mean, I had spent all my money moving back home. Oh my God. So I was like, I'm not going to go right back. I'm just going to stay here for maybe a year, decide what I want to do. Like all your money? Like, did you move back home or? I moved back to an apartment. Oh, but But not on your own. We'll see. Here's what happened when I'm going out to LA at, you know, 23 or whatever, like I'm going to be there for a long time. So I'm not going to take furniture. I'm going to go buy it new out there. You know, I'm going to get a a whole new setup. (laughs) So I get out to LA, I buy all this brand new furniture. And then seven months later, I'm like, I will get pennies for this, you know, and I don't have anything back home. So I spent like four grand to move this brand new furniture back home like have a truck like drive it back to cincinnati and then i just loaded up my car with everything else and drove home and so uh and so i'm in i'm in i'm I'm in cincinnati you know i do montreal and i do premium blend and then the next year oh five i decide i'm gonna submit for a half hour and uh and i don't get it but they invite me to perform at the south beach comedy festival uh, in July of 06, it was the first, or I'm sorry, January of 06. It was the first time that Comedy Central was going to try their own festival. And, uh, I knew there really wouldn't be any industry there because it's Comedy Central's the one putting it on, but it was like, you know, to get in better with them and a free trip to Miami in January when you live in Ohio, I'm yeah. like, yeah, absolutely. And so I was put on an outdoor show that was free, which those two things, you know, are Typically recipes for disaster yeah. for comedy. Nobody paid to get in and outdoors. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the baseball game prime example. Yes. So, outdoors. so uh but the show is great. It's uh Sebastian Maniscalco is also on the show. Uh relatively unknown Sebastian Maniscalco. Uh Brett Ernst is on the show, Jessica Curson, 
a uh, lot of super solid comics. Oh my God, every comic you're naming is like man, a killer. They're so great. It's so cool. And uh, and so the shows were really fun. The way that Comedy Central had it set up at this outdoor venue was really cool. And then um, I get off stage from one of my shows, and uh, this girl goes, "You got to come with me." And I was like, is "Something wrong?" And she's like, "No." She's like, Greg Giraldo is at the theater down the street and he didn't bring an opener. And so we showed him the list of people on this show and he knows you and he's like, have Josh come do it. So I like, we, we like scurry down to this theater and uh, he's like, thank you for doing it. I'm like, dude, of course. I mean, he's like one of my rest oh, in peace, but one dude. of just the all time. Oh, great. for sure. And, uh, and he's like, just can you just do like 20? And I was like, of course. So I go out and I do 20 minutes. And then after the show, um, we're walking to this red carpet event that Brett Ernst and I are going to be hosting for Comedy Central. And the girl gets a call, and uh, and she's like, she's like, he is, he does, oh he does. And she's like looking at me like, okay, I'll I'll let him know. And I was like, what was that all about? And she said that the president of Comedy Central was in the audience to see Greg Giraldo. And he wanted to make sure that he met me after the show at the part at the after party. Wow. And so I got to meet Doug Herzog. And then two weeks after that, I got offered my Comedy Central Presents. And so then that comes out and um, and then they have this stand up showdown on Comedy Central's website. And I ended up coming in second behind Jeff Dunham who was already doing arenas, so it felt like I came in first. Mm -hmm. And then that got me a record deal with Comedy Central, so my first album was on Comedy Central Records. And I say all that because it's it always was just like a little bit, every year it felt like just a little bit of progression to something, you know? Mm -hmm. And it, it never, there was never that long of a gap where I questioned, like, did I make the right decision? Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so... Um, in that time, I'd started the t-shirt company with my buddy, and that was kind of giving me something to do during the days. And, you know, he was an art academy graduate, so he would do the design, and then I'd go out on the road, and I'd wear our, our funny t-shirts to radio stations, or I'd sell them at the shows. And that's sort of how we started to build that brand up. And uh, it was just it was just kind of fun because it was like... It was. It was just like spending money, you know, at that time. But even... Even you having all this success, and literally, I mean, at that time in comedy, like, Comedy Central special, I mean, that's it. Like, that's like, you made it. it but even at that time, you're like, but I need, a, I need, I need some other income because I don't know if this is, like, I feel like if I was in that position, I'd be like, oh, I'm the chosen one. I've had all this fast <laughs> progression. Yeah, I'm, un I'm invincible. But, like, what was it in you that's like, this is all cool. But I'm already thinking long term that I don't want to be doing this as heavily. Well, it wasn't even that. It was that, you know, um, so on a, on a sadder note, in, in 07, um, which was like right after my special had come out, um, my dad got sick. And then he passed in February of 08. And so I wasn't married. I was still single at the time. But he and I were so close that it gave me this, like, this sort of, like, I don't know. It was kind of, like, sobering in a way that, like, man, I thought he was going to be around for a long time, and now he's not. And so 
if I do get married and have kids, like I can't just assume that I can be on the road and, you know, I'll come back and everything will be peachy. Like it, it really drove home the thing of like, you got to take advantage of like certain moments in, in their lives that you won't get a second chance at, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so ironically to get, when I got my comedy central record deal, it was right after my dad had passed away the, mm. the week after his funeral, I headlined my home club go bananas. And then a month later I got the album deal and they said, where would you like to record it? And I said, I want to record it at my home club, but I was just there like a month ago. And they're like, well, do you think you could do like a Friday, Saturday and just let people know that this is a, a, a special recording and that they would come back out again. And I, I felt like I knew enough people that I could let them know like, Hey, this is probably going to be stuff. If you just came, it's going to be a lot of the same stuff, but here's the situation. And so in, in two months after I had just played there, I did it again. And then we sold out all four shows and the, and that's how I got my album recording. Well, my now wife was in the audience that night, which I had not met her, huh. but, um, she sent me a note uh, after, after she had seen the show and, you know, fast forward a couple months after that, we start dating. And then, uh, a year later we're engaged, you know, a year later we're married a year later, we have our first kid. And so again, it wasn't that much time where I was sort of like, all right, well, I don't want to be on the road for first steps and first words and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, the t-shirt company slowly started to become more important as like a supplement than just like something I'd been doing for fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, um, so it was really cool to kind of see the growth of that, but it was also very nice in that it afforded me the chance to be home for like what I think are like super important moments as a parent and a, and a husband, you know? And so, um, you know, the plan was always, well, when he gets, you know, a little bit older, like starts kindergarten or something where my wife isn't responsible for keeping an eye on him 24 hours a day, if I'm not around, that'll make it easier to start gradually going back on the road and kind of turning the attention back to picking up where I left off, you know, so to speak with, uh, with stand up, And then when he was five, my daughter was born. And so that kind of like reset that clock. Wow. You know, but again, I've been very lucky that during that time where it's been very purposeful, you know, I haven't generated as much material as I'd like, you know, I was able to record the dry bar thing when that opportunity came along. And, um, you know, the success of that was amazing, you know, both for exposure to new fans, but also like, you know, some income during a global pandemic that no one could see coming. Yeah. Um, but you know, like COVID was like a a real wake up call. I think for a lot of comics of like, if, if we can't do live shows, what else are we, what else could we do? You know? Yep. And I was lucky because I I had something, um, you know, I didn't start a t-shirt company to help me get through COVID, but it helps, you know? And, um, I had also been approached by a candy company based out of Cincinnati that makes airheads and Mentos. 
um, they had, they had decided they wanted a comedian to run their social media oh. and knew that I was local and asked if I wanted to, um, you know, be their voice online. And so, uh, so I've been doing that for 10 years, 10 years. Yeah. Oh, wow. And no one knows it's me. Yeah. So if you ever, if you're ever talking to Mentos or Airheads, you're talking to me Whoa. and, uh, and so that's been great supplement income, but what that did is it made me realize that we have skills that if you just think outside of like writing a movie or, or acting, you know, but like, where else, where else is it, is it needed to have a professional comedian writing, you know, like social media for brands is something that they all struggle with. And whenever they hire an ad agency, it always comes across very sales pitchy, you know, it's not engaging, it's not witty. Um, and so I was like lucky that another company saw that in me. And so, um, yeah, it's just been, it's been great. <laughs> you know, so cool. I take summers off. I don't work between from comedy, right? You don't do comedy during the summer yeah, from mid May to mid August. I do no, no shows. Um, my wife has been a uh, stay at home for six years. So she hasn't had to work, you know, and all that stuff is like super important. It's very important to me, but you know, to the amount of stress that she has to deal with, like trying to limit that so that she doesn't have any animosity towards stand up because of how much more work it puts on her plate when I'm gone. You know, like all that stuff like adds up to reducing overall stress in our house, which makes it so much more enjoyable and to not have that kind of pressure. That I mean, that's, that's literally where I'm at right now with pre-pandemic. I was on the road more than ever. I was starting to headline a lot of comedy zones. Like basically as a comedian, it's like, oh, I worked 10 years to, oh, I'm a road comic now, like full, like full time and all this. And then pandemic hits, I'm unemployed overnight. And now road gigs are starting to come back and I'm like, I don't really want to be gone like that anymore. So I'm at a point now of like, well, what else can I do? You know, I'm kind of in like a, a transitional period right now. Like what are, what are some other side hustles you've seen comedians do or like, or advice you have for me? Like, I mean, like, tell me what to do, Josh. I mean, can I be, how can I make money from home? Well, you know, I mean, seriously, it's uh it's cliche, but like, if you can just find something that you're good at and you enjoy doing that doesn't feel like work, mm -hmm. like you'll find that the business will come, you know, it, as you hone your, your skills in that, you know, um, I, I wasn't a skilled trade tradesman for screen printing, you know, yeah. but I found it fun and I could, I felt like I had a knack for coming up with concepts that translated well to t-shirts. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think this podcast is like a great place for you to be because I mean, you do such a great job with it and you create awesome content with it, you know, that, um, I think, I think you're going to figure out a way to unlock this, you know, because comparative to what a lot of other people are doing, like you're just doing such a better job at it than wow. they are. You know well, I mean? Thank you. And that's not a, that's not really a slight to them as much as it is to like, you just, you just see it and you get your vision, you get your aesthetic for it, you know? And, uh, and I would, I would stay on this path and then 
I mean, I've heard of comics doing all kinds of stuff, but it's more, it's more of like making ends meet than it is, you know, um, like I see a future in this and it's like a business that I could scale. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's the difference is like, what, what are you, are you just trying to supplement your income with whatever so that you don't have to be gone all the time? Or are you trying to find something else that can sort of grow in its own time while you do stand up? in hopes that when you're ready to stop, that this can take over and, and you can live comfortably off the door. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Because yeah. that's what happened with the t-shirt company. Like I said, I didn't need it to be successful in 2005. I needed it to be successful by 2015. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I wish it was there was easy advice, but it really is just, Find something that you like doing that that you you don't have to put the pressure on yourself for it to be successful right now. It can grow while you have this other thing. And then as it grows, you know, who knows what'll happen. Yeah, I enjoy I enjoy doing this podcast. I've been doing it seven years. So I am at a a point now of like, all right, we've been doing it. We've interviewed a lot of super like cool people, and now it's like, all right, how can I turn this into a business yeah. basically. So that's where I'm at after doing this for so long as well. I mean, we can, I mean, I don't want to give all of my secrets. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm, I'll, get, I'll tell you after we're done here when I think you should do the next episode. I'm wearing like gold chains. Like, you know, Josh was right. <laughs> from your, from the giant home studio. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, it's uh, I don't know. There's no easy thing, but it, right. It, whatever it is, find it, you know, have an idea, work it out, workshop it out, see if there's a future in it. And if there's not move on to something else, you know? Yeah. But, um, but your peace of mind and your stress level and the things that you feel like you have to do to maintain the things that are important to you besides comedy, uh, that's worth the time and effort to figuring out what it is. Do you know what I mean? For sure. Yeah. Um, because as fun as this business is, you know, it, you get paid, you don't get, I always say a lot of comics say you don't get paid to perform. You get paid for all the stuff that you have to do to perform. You get paid to be away from your family and live out of a suitcase and stay in hotels and have canceled flights or rent cars. You know what I mean? Like that's what you're being paid to do. Getting on stage is, is the easy part. So, you know, um, I wish there was a simple answer, but, uh, you'll, you'll figure it out. Knowing that there should be something is the biggest step, like not putting all of your eggs in the basket and just assuming that I can do this forever and it'll always be there. That's the, you have the right mindset now of knowing that there's something else that you could be doing Mm. and finding that out will be the fun part, but. You're on the right path already, dude. Oh wow! Well, well, thank you for saying that. I like the I like the. Op- I read that in a fortune cookie. I like. <laughs> I appreciate the optimism there because it really was cool, in researching you, and us. Because I mean, I've I I, I I would come and watch you at like the old punchline. Mm-hmm. Like I so I've, I've been aware of you for a while, but I didn't realize your story of like, and you coming up around all these other like super successful comedians as well. Like there's, you could see certain trajectories in your career that you could go, but you're like, but I want to do this for me and like my family and like just find a different way. Two things that I think are very important on that is one, you have to, you have to genuinely be 
um, happy for other people's success, mm. right? Like w the guys that I would consider like my closest friend, my peers, when I was like kind of coming up through like the feature ranks, you know, Chad Daniels, Roy Wood Jr., Dan Cummins, Jamie Lisso, Pete Lee, you know, like guys that are doing like real cool stuff right now, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's just in stand up or on TV or movies, like those were my best friends. And I was so lucky to figure out a way to like be happy for them and not be jealous of them because we were on very similar paths at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's super easy to, I think, get jealous of people you don't know personally and you don't know their backstory. But when you know that you've come from the same spots as some of the other, the other people in the same clubs at the same time, um, you know, like I I love those guys still today and I'm so happy for all of them. Um, so finding finding a way to be at peace with your success and not compare it to other people, whether they're, you know, somebody that you consider a peer or not is huge, but also your definition of success is huge. And I say, I say this whenever I get the chance, Dave Chappelle said something on inside the actor studio that literally changed my life. It changed the second I heard it, it changed my life because I was living in Ohio I was debating on whether or not I needed to go back to LA or move to New York if I really wanted to take it to the next step. And it wasn't out of a need. It was just out of like me getting in my own head about what do we typically consider the definition of successes as a comedian. And from the first time you start, it's always, do you have your own show? Do you, are you a movie star? Are you a writer? You know, like, it was, it's, it was always like the pinnacle of the industry was what you considered success, mm -hmm. you know? And Dave, w when he was on Inside the Actor Studio, they he asked him, you know, what did your parents think when you told them you wanted to become a comedian? And, uh, and he said they thought it was a phase, you know? They thought that it was, it was something temporary. And, and one of his parents said, well, will you stop doing it if you're not successful? And his response to them was, well, that depends on what your definition of a success is. And he says, if a teacher makes $40,000 a year and I can make $40,000 a year doing stand-up, I'd rather be a comedian than a teacher. And so when I heard that, I was like, you know what? That's so true. Like, if I can live in pretty much anonymity in Cincinnati, Ohio, and pay my bills, I could pay them just doing stand-up if I wanted, you know? that's success. Like that's a, that's a success in the entertainment industry. Like just cause I'm not famous or selling out arenas, but I can make a, as good of a living as my neighbor. Who's a executive for Procter and Gamble or this guy across the street. Who's a, a lawyer, you know, like if I can make as much money at them doing this and nobody knows who I am, that's still success, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so if I just learn to be happy that I can make a living doing what I love, then I don't have to worry about the things that I didn't get or all of the stuff that I haven't done. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And so like I, I would sell any comic who's not, you know, sort of zeroed in on the, you know, selling out arenas or having a Netflix special. Like if you, if you can make a living 
doing what you love, like that's that's success. Like that's something ninety percent of the population can't say right. about whatever it is they do. You know, um, Jimmy Pardo is like one of my all time favorite comics, and he shared a quote on his podcast a long time ago that I always think about too. And he said, you know, something along the lines of, and it may not have been his quote, but that's who I heard say it. And he was saying, you know, if you if you always think of success as a ladder, you know, you're always like trying to climb and like see who's in front of you. And very rarely do you take time to like look down and see how far you've come, you know. And so, you know, I try to remind myself of that sometimes where it's like, think about anybody that's ever come up to you after a show and said, I've thought about giving this a try. You know, my friends say I'm funny. Mm-hmm. You know, I can I can get up there. Like of all of those people, like how many people actually do one open mic night? And then of those people, like how many do a second or a third? And then of all the people who like love doing open mic nights, how many get to get paid as an MC one time? And how many get to be regulars? And then how many of those get to be features? And how many of those get to be headliners? And you start with that and then you get down to this and you realize that just being a headliner at the Atlanta punchline is a spot reserved for at the most 52 people in one year. And you get to do it every year. Like it's how do you not be grateful for just getting that far? Yeah. You know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. That's perspective there. I think it's just more important to figure out a way to be happy with what you have than constantly worrying about what other people have or the things that you don't have. Yeah. Do you find as soon as you like, cause like me right now, I'm like trying to force something to happen. But if you found like when you just like let go, (laughs) that's when like, Oh, that's where the breakthrough is when you stop trying to like suffocate it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I've only gotten one commercial ever, and it was the one audition that I did not care about. Yeah. <laughs> I always think about that. I just went in with this, like, whatever. I never get these, you know. Uh-huh. And I got it. Yeah. Uh, the South Beach Comedy Festival, I took it because it was like, eh, it's a free trip to Miami. Well, President of Comedy Central was in the audience, and it got me a half-hour special, you know. Yeah. Your eye bar. Mm. Never heard of it, but the tapes look good, so I'm going to do it to get a good tape out of it. And then more exposure than anything I've ever done in my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you just don't know. But I think it goes back, and I I tried to get this mentality when Last Comic Standing was really big, because I would notice that the people who did really well on Last Comic Standing, they that were, like, seasoned comedians and had, uh, like, a lot of experience in the clubs... We're able, and I see it on America's Got Talent now too. When that opportunity for that like next level success is presented to you, if you're prepared to accept it, then that's what all the hard work was for, you know? So that's kind of like what I try to tell myself is like, if it comes, great. I know that I'm ready for it. I've stayed sharp. I feel like as a comic, I've never been sharper on stage right now uh you know my my daughter is now seven so i've again started to turn back to like generating new material and flushing out these premises i've literally just been keeping in a book for like the last feels like 10 years wow yeah um because 
they're good. You know, they're 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 into their own things now and they love me and I love them and they know that I'm around and that I'm not going to be on the road all the time. But, uh, you know, my wife doesn't have to be watching them all the time if I'm not around. So it's easier on her. So now I've kind of started to shift my focus back and I've been fleshing out new material and I'm probably, I don't know, 85% to like an, an hour of material that has not been ever recorded. And so that's like exciting for me at, you know, 46 to like still have that feeling, you know, 25 years into the business of still being like, this excites me. I got new stuff. Uh, I've got people that want to hear it when I put it out. Like that's, that's the goal, right? Yeah. Well, I I have to ask before we uh, land this plane, because you mentioned, um, um, working with people like Geraldo and Mitch Hedberg was the one for me that the best, the best, like he's Sinbad's the guy I saw on TV first. Yeah. And was just like first comic I ever saw on television. And I was like, Oh, that looks fun. And he's just funky and having a good time. And he's clean, which I've always been just, just, uh, it just kind of what was naturally funny to me. Me too. But I like all comedy, but, uh, I'm the same way it was, it was, but Mitch Hedberg was the comedian. I think I just, the first one I just listened to on repeat over and over and over again. Yeah. And you got, did you get to work with him? Oh yeah. I have the best Mitch stories. Um, so to your point, Bill Cosby was the first one I ever saw. Cause my parents, I grew up in a very strict Southern Baptist home. So, uh, I did not have, you know, Lenny Bruce and George Carlin records on in the background. Like we watched Bill Cosby himself, which ironically is, even creepier something uh, you know uh, some Jeff Foxworthy tapes maybe in the car on the way to vacation uh-huh. and then uh and then I would I would watch evening at the improv that was my like that was the show that I would watch stand-up comedy on and Wendy Liebman Larry Miller and Stephen Wright was like my guy I love wordplay I love puns Stephen Wright of all the ones I'd seen was like this is my dude so fast forward, I'm doing stand up. Um, I'm doing IT. This is before I was full time. Um, and someone at, at my job brings me a Time magazine that had just done a special piece on Montreal. And uh, they had gone over, Seinfeld had just gone off the air. And so the piece was about the new faces at Montreal seeing are any of these people the next Seinfeld? And it was like Horatio Sands. There was like a bunch of names that you would even recognize today. And the and the main star of the article was Mitch Hedberg. And someone was just like, here, this is about stand-up. You'd like it, you know? And so I was like reading about it. And then uh, the guy from Go Bananas called me into his office and he says, I'm thinking about bringing this guy to the club. And he plays this clip of Mitch on Louis Anderson's um, like comic strip live or, or whatever show that was. And... Uh, and I was like, this is like the modern day Mitch Hed- or the modern day Stephen Wright. Yeah. Like, this is my guy. I was like, you have got to let me MC for this dude when he comes here. And so he did. And so, um, so he let me open for Mitch. And then, um, I was booked the next week to MC in Dayton, uh, which is like 45 minutes from Cincinnati. And that headliner canceled the week before. So the Dayton club called 
go bananas and said, would Mitch like to just stick around this part of the country and work our club next week? And he did. So I worked with Mitch two weeks back to back as his opener. And, um, and he was so fun to hang out with. He wanted to go to movies. We went bowling. And uh, I was like, as soon as I got off work, I would drive up and then we would go do something fun before the show. And so um, it went so well. This was probably like April or May of 99. And then that um, December for New Year's Eve, they booked him again to headline New Year's Eve 99 to 2000. And I was an IT guy. So everybody was worried about Y2K. Yeah. So I was, they gave me the week at the club, but I had to leave at midnight to go back to work just in case like the world's computers shut down or whatever. Wow. And so before I left, Mitch said, do you want to come open for me in North Dakota in February in Grand Forks, North Dakota at this old club called the Westward Ho. And, uh, he was like, I'm doing a special show on Valentine's day. And I was like, absolutely. So I took vacation and I drove to North Dakota and uh, I did this show, Mitch Hedberg and Friends, and it was awesome. And he, on that trip, uh, so that would have been, yeah, February of 2000, he's like, quit your job. And I'm like, I can't quit my job. And he's like, quit your job. Call your boss. This is like Saturday night at like <laughs> three in the morning. Call him right now. Tell him you're not coming. In. I was like, Mitch, I can't. <laughs> There's no chance that I can quit my job right now. He's like, you need to quit your job. And I was like, I can't do it. And so I went back home and then we, we'd kind of stayed in touch. I would randomly take vacation days to go work with him on the road if he would call. And so when I decided to quit my job, uh, in early of 01, I said, Hey, I, I called my parents and I called Mitch and he was the second person I called and I said, I'm quitting my job to do comedy full time. And he said, what's your last day? And, he, and I said, Friday, the 13th of July, 2001. And he goes, so what does that mean? The next week's your full-time, the you know, your first week is a full-time comic? And I said, yeah. And he said, what club have you always wanted to work that you've never worked? And I was like, well, there's a million of them. But at the time, the laugh stop in Houston was the club. It's where, like, Dane Cook and Louis C.K., like, everybody was recording their albums in there. It was just kind of known as, like, one of the Did best. Bill Hicks albums. come up there? Yeah, time? I think so. Yeah. Yes, he did, for sure. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I was like, what about the laugh stop in Houston? And he hung up, and he called me back, and he said, your first week is a full-time comic. You're featuring for me at the laugh stop in Houston. And I was like, what? So I went down there, and then uh, almost once a month, he would say, where are you trying to get into that you can't get into? And I would say Atlanta. And so he was the reason that I got into Atlanta to the punchline for the first time was because he brought me here with him. And at the old club in the green room, everybody signed the wall. Mm -hmm. And that first time I was here and I just, I think I put the punchline, this is why you become a comedian. And I wrote, the first time that I was there, like the, the day, uh, the month in the year. And then every time I came back, I would just add the month in the year to it. And so when they closed the old club down, I took a picture next to it and there was like 17 wow. 
dates or something of times that, that I had been here, but the first time was with Mitch and, uh, and I'll give you two quick stories. I know we're over time. There's no, well, I mean, I know your, I know your wife had called you, but no, I don't, she's fine. No, I was just talking about Mitch. <laughs> Dude, yo, no, yo, let, uh, let him fly, man. This uh, so one time when we were here, um, like when you work with Mitch a lot, you start to talk like him and you start to write like him. Like, it's just like, it's just weird. Like it, you can't help it. You know, you just, you get used to his cadence. Cause I would never miss a set. Like I just, he's the best of all time. So were his sets always different or was he pretty scripted? He was all over the place. You okay. know, he had, a, he had his book. I mean, it was so important to him because his jokes were so short, they were easy for people to memorize. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you can imagine what it would be like today in the social media world with Hedberg. Like, he would be a billionaire just on viral. Because just boom, boom, boom. 30 boom, second boom. clips yeah. you know, of full jokes. Um, Not to derail your story. No, no. But, I, 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 like, it, it was, a, sometimes it would be to his detriment that he wanted to have new stuff so bad. Because people would yell out, jokes that they want to hear oh, wow. and he'd be like why do you want to hear that you know you already know the answer to it I, i'm gonna write new stuff you know and then he would like he would he would sort of um not depression per se but like he would become obsessed with how much the crowd was enjoying the show and would and would be very hard on himself you know um and it was like Everybody else is like, this guy's a genius. Like, just do whatever you want, and people will be on board with it. But he was always so worried about what people thought. And so I was starting to write jokes that, like, just didn't make sense for my act, but they were kind of written in Mitch's voice. And I I went to him, and I was like, would you, wanna, would you want any of these? You know, I think they're funny, but, like, they just don't make sense if I do them. And he's like, they are funny, but you need to do them. And I'm like... <laughs> I said, it don't make sense if I do them. And I go, they're like your voice. He's like, they're, you need to do them. And I'm like, well, just never mind then. So we're we're at the old punchline. And uh, he's on stage and he goes, uh, it's like halfway through his set. He goes, hey, Josh, you, you still in here? And I was at the back. And I was like, yeah, I'm here. He's like, y'all remember Josh, right? Well, he wrote jokes that are funny, but he don't want to do them. He wants me to do them. I'm going to make him come up here and do him. <laughs> He's like, you want to hear the jokes Josh wrote for me? And everybody's like, yeah. you know, so I went on stage and I was like, well, I wrote these jokes as Mitch. So if I'm going to do them, I need to do them as Mitch. So I like close my eyes and I get, you know, right up on the microphone. But oh, yeah. <laughs> and everybody would start giggling, you know. And then I would do these like four or five like little punny, you know, mm -hmm. Mitch style jokes. And they did really well. And then you know, the few times after that, that I was worked with him, that's what he would do. He'd bring me up and have me do the jokes I wrote for him. So one, you know, like he was so good to me and, and to so many people, but I never felt like there was anything I could do for him. Certainly not financially or within the business. Like there's no way I could repay him, you know? So I was walking around the I think it was like the perimeter mall or something one day killing time and I came upon a, a Build-A-Bear shop and they had koalas in there and so uh I was like can you like record your voice and and like stick it in here and they're like yeah and so I did all of Mitch's koala jokes as Mitch you know 
And uh, and like if you press the paw, you know, it'd be like, hey, Mitch, feed me a leaf, you know. <laughs> and so uh, so I gave it to him that night at, at the punchline. And I was just like, this is just something dumb just to say, you know, thank you for all that you've done for me. And uh, and then when his next album came out, Mitch all together, there's a liner note that says, thank you, Josh Sneed for Quacky. And so they, him and Lynn had named the koala bear Quacky, and they would take it on the road with them and, you know, have it order a bunch of room service. And they'd be like, who ordered all this food with it? Quacky? <laughs> you know. And so it was just a fun little, like, if anybody read that in those notes, they would have no idea what Quacky is, but it's a stuffed koala bear oh my that gosh. talked like Mitch Hedberg that I gave to him. Oh, my God. And I'll tell you this. This is my favorite Mitch thing. So... When I was recording an album, um, it was actually the first thing I ever recorded pre-Comedy Central. It was literally just a homemade CD to have to sell on the road. Um, I was opening for Ron White. and uh, Oh, yeah. You opened for all Blue Collar. Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. tour, right? At one yeah. time? Yeah. So I was opening for Ron at a club. Um, he had already started selling out theaters, but he had had this club date booked and he wanted to honor it. So it sold out like nine shows in four days. I mean, it was like insane. We did three shows on a Sunday. Oh my. That's how many tickets he sold. And so I was like, well, I'm going to record this week, you know, from the feature spot. I'll just do a bunch of different sets because I know that it's going to sound the same in the same club and that every show is going to be packed. Yeah. So I recorded all these sets and the MC rest in peace his name was ricky peard and he just passed away not long ago but he had the thickest southern accent you have ever heard so i had all these sets that i was really happy with but they all started with ladies and gentlemen please welcome josh need and i was like i cannot have this dude <laughs> Like introducing me on my CD, right? right. So the next week I was in, um, I was in Nashville with Mitch and, uh, and he was like, he was, how did the recording go? And I was like, well, it was great except for the intro. And I told him what had happened. He goes, do you still got your recording stuff? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I'll record it for you. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, go get it. So in the green room of the Nashville comedy club, uh, Zanies, um, he recorded, what was the intro for my first CD? And he says, uh, Hey everybody, it's Mitch Hedberg. Grab a drink, sit back, relax, and listen to the comedy of my favorite, Josh Sneed. And so that was the intro that led into my set. And then of course he passed before, uh, my comedy central album came out and I just felt like I couldn't do it again with like out being able to ask him if it was still cool. You know, I think it would have been, but it just felt weird. So it just kind of made that first CD that much more special, but he, he recorded the intro to my first CD and it's out, it's out there, um, on like YouTube and stuff. And I've, I've put the audio like, you know, on the anniversary of like his passing or his birthday or something, sometimes I'll just like write little stories about him and I always share the audio from that. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I didn't even, cause I think he died on April fool's day. The day before the day. Yeah. Oh, so I, I heard out. about yeah, it on out. April fool's day and I, and I was like, this has gotta be a joke. This would be something Mitch would be like, Oh, he dies on April fool's day. There's no way. Right. And then you're like, Oh no, it actually did. Yeah. The last time I saw him, he was doing this Comedy Central tour with Stephen Lynch, who's like super funny mm. um, 
comedian, musician, and um, he, I, our paths just happened to cross. I was out with the Blue Collar guys, and uh, they were doing a show in Michigan at the same time, so I stopped by to just kind of hang out. Al Madrigal was the MC, who's like amazing, oh but he was like, you know, the MC at that time, not really anybody had heard of, and I was like, fell in love with him immediately, so funny. But um, Mitch asked me to do a guest set this was like February of 04, I think. Um, and he was like, you want to do some time? I was like, Mitch, this isn't like a late show Friday at the punchline. Like, this is like a theater. Like, you don't do guest sets at theaters. He's like, you can do it in my show. So I did like 10 minutes on this theater show where I was just there to hang out. And um, not knowing that would be the last night that I saw him because, you know, a couple months later he passed away. But uh, that night... I was at, um, I was doing a show in Lexington at the University of Kentucky and on my way to the gig, my manager called and he said, Hey, have you heard anything about Mitch? And I said, no, why? And he goes, well, the rumors going around that, that he passed away. And I was like, I haven't heard anything about that. And he goes, well, the club that he's supposed to be at this weekend is calling around trying to find another comedian. And I was like, oh, man, I was like, no, I haven't heard anything, but I'll try to find out. And uh, a woman that used to work here at the Punchline, um, she was real close with Mitch and Lynn, Kathy. And so I messaged her asking if, if she had heard anything when I didn't hear back. And uh, I go on stage at at the school. And when I come off stage, I um, I look at my cell phone and it was, there was uh, 36 missed calls from like the word had gotten out and everybody had called to make sure that I had heard about it. But it was like, as soon as I saw that, I was like, well, I know what these are all about. Yeah. So oh I know such a, such a loss to, of a human and as uh, to the business, you know, just like I, just people won't get to know like how cool he was and like what he did for completely unknown people like me to just like, help him out wherever he could i mean it's just like ridiculous there's i have so many stories but i hope they all get told by people someday i know i had never heard that side of them like i'd only heard just story i think i heard greg warren tell a story of like a funny story of them like a hotel or, and him trying to play so pay cash so, so like funny. i've heard that side of it of him and like how like how he was off stage was like similar to on stage he was kind of out there but i haven't heard that side of him like like just how generous he actually was, oh, you man. know, I, I know someone's working on a documentary and I know it'll, it'll get done and it'll be like, people will be just amazed by his story, but I think they will be even more amazed by just how many people like me have stories about just like cool stuff that he did, that he did not have to do. And knowing, especially at that time, you know, cause social media wasn't a thing. You know, so it wasn't, it wasn't ever, these stories would get around so much quicker now, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, they just came from like a genuine good dude that loved the business and loved to see, you know, help out young comics. And was he like the guy, like in the industry, was he like at the top of the food chain at one point? Is that how big he got? I mean, I think he was headed that way. Yeah. You know, he did a tour. 
before the Stephen Lynch tour, he did a tour for Comedy Central. It was him, Dave Attell, and Louis Black. They were all on the same show together. And uh, he was starting to, ju like, literally just starting to do theaters. And I just think that, I mean, if it was today, he would be the number one comedian in the universe. I mean, he would sell out everywhere he went just because the exposure that catapults people to that type of fame, he he was built for that. He had the look, he had the jokes. He like I just remember I'm just being in awe like in the back of the room no matter where we were every time just I cannot wrap my head around the fact that someone would know a joke by heart and still want to hear him say it. Yeah. Like it it happens to me once a month maybe from somebody who has memorized something from dry bar. Like we do the whatever bit. And then like it, this was every night where he would do an hour of brand new stuff. And then he would do a half hour of people just yelling out stuff they wanted to hear. And they're just, it's not like Bert machine story. That's 13, 20 minutes or whatever, but it's literally just like a one liner. People are like, just say that set up punchline. Yes. That's so cool. I know. Wow. I know it's, I appreciate you sharing that. I haven't heard anyone talk about that side of him before. So yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. Like I said, a lot of a lot of people got to see it, you know. Yeah. Um and it's just it's just unfortunate for so many reasons, but primarily like just a like just a loss of like this unicorn comedian human. It's it's uh it stinks. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, really of course, man. That. I'll talk about those. I mean, like I said, I was Geraldo, Attell, Patrice. You know, uh, I mean, Attell's still alive, but I just was so lucky to be all killers, at such yeah. an impressionable age and and years in the business to be able to like, like literally learn from the best. Bill Burr, Gaffigan, Birbiglia. What? what? All these people coming through that club? Oh yeah, you got to just. Oh yeah. Oh my. Oh yeah, it's wild. It's wild, and it's wild to like hear your reaction to that because I remember being the young guy, and when people would say, "Oh yeah, I worked with Bill Hicks," or "Oh yeah, Sam Sam Kinison used to come," like they would say these names, right? I'd be like, "What? <laughs> they worked the comedy <laughs> Like. <laughs> You know, and then now I'll just tell like a Mitch story, like, yeah, it was awesome. And then like other, you know, younger guys would be like, You met him? Like, what? <laughs> They're people? Wait a minute. They're comedians? The Duke Clubs? Yeah. Was there anything that you learned as we like maybe like as a encapsulating piece of advice for comics out there? Is like there anything you learned from working with all these amazing people that maybe you could apply to like younger comics? I tried to learn whatever I could. Like I said, I was a sponge. So, I mean, it, everything from the performance side, like what to do with the microphone, like a mic stand or, you know, how close to hold the microphone, when to scream, when to whisper, how to deal with the check drop, how to deal with the heckler. Like you can just learn, I feel like, as much by watching professionals as you can by actually being up there. I think they're both important. Um, so I would say be, be a sponge, go to the club, even when you're not on the show to just like network, but also just like see, see if you can learn something by watching.
And then off stage, um, Larry, the cable guy taught me a very valuable lesson about like appreciating fans. You know, we did a show once in West Virginia where, um, I think there's probably like 3000 people at the show and our show was like an hour and a half, but we were in the lobby for three hours afterwards because he let everyone that wanted to come through the line and meet him. He stayed there until the last person left. And so I was just like that. I just said, I was like, man, that was really impressive. And he said, that guy that just waited three hours, the fact that I was still standing here, like he'll remember that that guy will be a fan forever. And he was just like, if you just appreciate the people that pay money and come out, like those are the ones that are going to go out and tell other people that they should check you out. Mm-hmm. And so I try to keep that. I mean, I'm not waiting three hours after a show and it's usually, <laughs> it usually can meet everybody that wants to say hi in about eight minutes. Just by a big selfie. Yeah. <laughs> everybody. It's like, um, but I just try to remember that because, uh, you know, it's still, I'm still kind of getting used to it. I know you've had some, some big name guys on this show, but it's new to, new to me, even this late into my career that people show up because you were there, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a, such a great feeling. I mean, when you become a headliner, a lot of times the shows that you're doing from the traditional route, not because you developed a huge following online, but just working your way up. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, people are at the show because they wanted to go to the comedy club that night. You know, whoever was there was there, but they wanted to see a comedy show. And when that slowly starts to shift to people that are there because you're there, you know, and then it gets even crazier to like, I was in Phoenix back in March and, uh, this couple was like, we, we couldn't wait to see your show. And I was like, oh, cool. I was like, are you, are you guys from around here? And they're like, well, we're from Utah. And I was like, oh, nice. And I go, but you live here now? And they're like, no, we drove here from Utah for tonight. And I'm just like, I, like I can't even wrap my head around it. You know, that that Phoenix was the closest I was going to be to Utah. So they're like, let's drive. Like, I, I can't, there are not words for how that makes you feel as a comedian to know that you've left an impression on a stranger to the degree that they would go through all of that just to watch you on stage for an hour. Wow. And so those little moments are what keep me going to want to, to try to give the best show I can when I am performing, but also to not give up. You know what I mean? Like know that how cool would it be if there was a room full of people that said that instead of just one table, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my, my goal in moving forward and trying to progress my career versus just like treading water. Uh, so you almost have the t-shirt business running now. It's like a 30 person operation now, I think. So yeah. it's like, now you kind of got that plate spinning. And now that your family is a little more like they're a little more grown up doing their own things. Now you're like, okay, back to, Back yeah. to what it coming full circle here. Oh, yeah, that's exciting, man. It is. It's very exciting for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this new special, getting it recorded and oh, yeah. putting it out there because just you know, like the dry bar stuff. 
as awesome as it was, it was a lot of old material. There was only a couple of bits that didn't exist on a previous album or my Comedy Central special. And so now that I know that there's like an audience out there that's kind of into what I do, like it's really exciting for me to go, here's something I know you've never heard before. Because mm -hmm. I haven't had that feeling in a long time. That's ex well, I'm excited to do this interview at that moment in your career as well. <laughs> Very good let's time, do it, Josh. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it, bro. Where, where could people, um, where would you like people to keep up with you and come see you live? How can they keep up with all your good stuff? Just at Josh Sneed on whatever social media. Mm -hmm. I'm, the, I'm, I'm on all of them and I pretty much post the same stuff on all of them, just try to cover my bases. So, you know, I try to share and create little funny online things you know i'm not a big sharer of stand-up clips um i know that's all the rage and maybe that's that's what is holding me back is not sharing more of my act but i'm just i don't i don't want to go down the crowd work hole as, yeah as lucrative as i know as it is there's guys that are and girls that are so much better at it than me it's not part of what people would actually see at my show and um so that's why i'm not really doing that and then as far as my material goes most of what i would put out there now is stuff that's already out there on dry bar or comedy central or something all the stuff that isn't is stuff that i'm saving for this next hour so once that gets done i'm sure it'll get chopped up into little clips as well but that's why i'm not sharing any of those now so the stuff i put out now is more just like memes and you know like silly little things that i do or, or stuff that my kids say so if you're into that kind of thing give me a follow or come see me in, in your town when i'm there and you can hear the new material yeah and if people enjoyed this you know please reach out to josh on social media and let them know and if you're not already subscribe to our youtube channel where you can get access to this plus over 400 other interviews we've done with comedians all about comedy and send joel money like pay this man for this amazing content because he deserves it and it's worth it. And if you want to see it continue, then you got to support it. Patreon.com slash Hot Breath Pod. Don't. We'll see you there. Josh Sneed, thanks for being on Hot Breath. Dude, thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Awesome. Woo. That was good. That was great. You feel good about that? Yeah, I do. Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.